Second Peter 1, 12 through 15. This is the Word of God. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at, my, at any time to recall these things. Here we see a key uh, pedagogical uh, uh, principle from Apostle Peter. A great teaching tool is reminding, uh, reteaching, repeating instructions. By repetition, it connotes the importance of the content that is taught. By repetition, the content is ingrained in the mind of the learner, of the student. And by repetition, the student is able to recall these things at any time. So Peter was committed to teaching the gospel of Christ, the central truths of Christ, over and over and over to the readers, to the early church, so that after the apostles were gone, they would be able to understand, hold, and uh, pass on these doctrines to future generations. It seems that the modern church um, has forgotten or neglected this important principle of the Christian faith. There is an intellectual snobbery in the midst of pop Christianity today. Uh, A fascination, if you will, an obsession with what is new. An almost insatiable longing for the latest book, latest method or program or latest insight into the Word of God. This is pervasive in the leaders of the church and also in the members as well. A craving to learn new things and a craving just to learn more things, accumulate knowledge to a point where a person's maturity or godliness is is based upon their knowledge, how much books they have read, how many sermons they have heard, how many conferences they've been to. And by doing this, uh, they have gone astray from the foundational truths of the Bible. Instead of majoring on the majors and repeatedly studying the core doctrines of the Christian faith, it seems that many Christians are just fascinated with the new and have neglected the central truths of the Bible. It is... Intellectual snobbery. Pastor John Piper spoke of this in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. I quoted this many times, so I'll quote, quote it to you again. He said, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things. Indeed, they are not. But they are the ones who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth 
and roll on into eternity. You don't have to have a high IQ, good looks, riches, come from a fine family or a good school. Instead, you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious truths and be set on fire by them. It's not about how much you know, but how well you know the few things that truly matter. Not how much you know, but how much of you is captive to few truths. Few truths. So life is short. We must portion our passions wisely. We must channel our energies even our mental abilities or mental capacities wisely and focus on the few truths that truly matter the most. I'll contend to you, the chief knowledge within Christendom is the character of God. If you want to make your life count, if you want to have a durable difference in your life, family, community, this world, The first doctrine, the first proper doctrine that you should master and be mastered by ought to be, must be, the attributes of God. The character of God. To have a God-centered life means to have the attributes of God to be at the center of one's life. What is God-centered life? It's not some method. It's not some... uh, Ritual. It's not some habit. It's not just thinking about God. It's thinking right things about God consistently and have those truths inform and instruct and guide your decisions moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. God-centeredness means having attributes of God, the theology of God, the doctrines of God from the Scriptures to be the center of your mind, of your heart, of your soul, having God's attributes at the hub of who you are. This is the greatest need of every Christian, the greatest need of our church, and this is what we truly hunger for. This is the urgent and desperate need of every believer in the world. This is our greatest need. What do I need as a pastor? What do you you need as a member of the church or as a Christian following Christ? We need desperately a renewed glimpse of the sovereignty, holiness, and mercy of God. A radical reformation, right? a radical Protestant reformation where we protest against these man-centered, trivial, shallow views of God presented by the world today, by the church today. We protest against that and we go back to the scriptures to reclaim a high and lofty, soul-wrenching vision of God as revealed in the scriptures. The greatest need, again, in our lives is not... More meetings, you know, more. I love SWAT, but, you know, not SWAT or retreats or programs or methods. We don't need more fellowship. We need, I mean, prayer and word. All of that is without effect, without a right view of God. In Piper's word, a deeper appetite of God a deeper appreciation, a deeper cherishing of God. J.I. Packer said in his book, Knowing God, 
What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set our lives in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? John 17.3 The true knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else in this world. Knowledge of God. Therefore, Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. The boast of a man is not in his wisdom, is not in his riches, it's not in his strength. The boast of a man that is worthy of consideration is that he boasts that he has the knowledge of God, that he knows God. Therefore, John Calvin demanded that his disciples contemplate with steady, unblinking resolution the absolute, incomprehensible, and transcendent sovereignty of God. He required his students to stare fixedly and without relief into the very center of the blazing glory of God. Because that's what it means to be reformed. That's what it means to have a God in our life. That's what it means to... That is what is required to make an impact in this world. Apart from God, the center of your life, that these things are guaranteed, a shallow Christian life. If you're struggling with being shallow, being petty, being fleshly, being worldly, this is the core of your problem. This is the reason for your pettiness. Because of your cursory understanding of the doctrine of God, the attributes of God. And if you have a shallow view of God, you have a very short Christian life ahead of you. A very short Christian life. The Christian life is a a marathon, an Ironman triathlon. Um, You know, forget about the marathon part, forget about the bicycle part. You're not going to make it through the 2.4 2.4 miles swimming part. Because the only thing that sustains and fuels lasting obedience as a Christian is the true knowledge of God. The character of God. So that's what we want to do this morning as we enter into Thanksgiving and the crazy season of the year. End of November and December. We want to Take a long, hard gaze at the beauty of God as revealed to us in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Here, God in His wisdom records for us Isaiah's encounter with the thrice holy God of Israel. Isaiah 6 teaches us that we are not, this is not to be replicated by every Christian. This is an experience reserved only for Isaiah. We experience what Isaiah experienced. We come to know what Isaiah came to know by the recorded scriptures, by reading and studying God's Word, not by trying to replicate this experience in our own walk with God, but by studying Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and exalted, lifted up, and the train of His robe was fill, has filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. 
Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the fountains, foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, the angels, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord Adonai saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Make their ears heavy. Blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses are without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people from far, people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain, they will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So, from this incredible chapter in the Old Testament, we want to see three attributes of God. His sovereignty, His holiness and His grace. Sovereignty, holiness, and grace. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. The King of Israel died. It caused much fear and trepidation in the land of Israel. Isaiah was afraid because their leader I passed away. They were were leaderless. He goes to the temple and he saw the Lord. I want you to notice the word Lord in the scriptures and you will notice that it's two different renderings of Lord in the Hebrew Bible. There's capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and then in capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the way English translators differentiate two different Hebrew renderings of, of Lord or, or, or God, capital L-O-R-D is God's name, Yahweh. That's the revealed name. That's the name revealed to Moses in the burning bush. And whenever Bible, Bible translators came upon Yahweh, they would translate it so that we would know um, that it's Yahweh with capital L-O-R-D. But capital L-O-R-D-E, O-R-D, is Adonai. It's Adonai. Isaiah wants the temple of God in the year of King Uzziah's death. He was a good king. He strengthened the nation, made Jerusalem powerful. Uzziah had reigned for 52 years. His death caused quite a stir. Future was bleak. There was lack of stability. Four nations were growing in strength. 
possible invasion by these foreign nations was, a pro- was possible. Isaiah went to the temple of God. In the year the human king died, and he's saying, I saw the true king. I saw the true sovereign ruler of all the earth. I saw the Adonai. He says in verse 5, I have seen the king. I have been focused. Our nation has been focused on this king. I have seen the king of kings. The true sovereign ruler. Who is the creator of all things. Whose dominion knows no end. Who is almighty. Who is all powerful. He had looked at man and now he had looked at the king. True king. And he saw, he saw, Isaiah saw God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. And he saw the, the powerful display of God's glory. He is seated on a throne, a kingly throne, high and exalted. And his train filled the temple. God's sovereignty means that he is the absolute and sole ruler who is independent of all other rule. When we say that God is sovereign, we are saying that He is the number one ruler in the, in the universe with absolute authority and power over all. This is how I explain it to my children. God's sovereignty means God can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, to whomever He wants. I tell my children, I know you think that is very strong, and that is strong. <laughs> but... Nothing compared to the strength of God. Because God can do whatever He wants. So when you're sick, all I can do is pray. I can't make you better. God can do whatever He wants. And for me, I have to wait. You want things? I have to wait. I don't have power over time. God can do things whenever He wants. And Elizabeth, I don't have power over people. I wish this person would change. I wish your heart would change. I wish my heart would change. I have no authority. But children understand, God can do whatever He wants, whatever He wants, to whomever He wants. That's the extent of God's power and rule. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established His throne in heaven. His throne is not in in Jerusalem per se, or in Washington D.C., or some other capital. His throne is in the heavens, meaning He rules over all. His kingdom rules over all. Psalm 24.10, Who is He, the King of glory, the Lord Almighty, all-powerful, all strength is in His hands. First Chronicles 29.11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, power, and the glory, and the majesty, and the splendor, For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Yahweh, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. In Daniel 4.35. You know, a verse that grows in importance as we grow through the many stages of life. When you're a teenager, Daniel 4.35 is a good verse. You know, when you go to college and you experience small failures, in life, relationships. Daniel 4.35 becomes a little more important. You get married and you have children. You get older. Your body starts to give. And you face the, experience the great disappointments, the great losses of life. 
and you feel powerless, helpless. You're drowning and uh, there's no bottom. Daniel 4.35 takes on a whole new significance to a heart who's faced the cold reality of this world. Daniel 4.35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. God is not impressed with people. He's not a respecter of persons. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing to God. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand. No one can stop God. No one can stop God. Or no one can say to Him, what have you done? God answers to nobody. God answers to nobody. Now people think that Daniel spoke these words in Daniel 4.35, but it wasn't Daniel. It was King Nebuchadnezzar. This proud, arrogant, godless, pagan king over the most mighty nation at that time uttered these words. The brief context in which he uttered these words. In Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that terrifies him. His dream was this. In the middle of a field was a strong and large tree. The tree was so large and strong, the top touched the heavens for all the world to see. In his dream, a messenger of God comes down and commands the tree to be cut down and its branches stripped of its fruits and leaves. And this tree is drenched with the dew of heaven. And this tree eats the grass of the field. And this person, this animal, is, it becomes an animal, is changed from the mind of a man to a mind of an animal for seven years. Nebuchadnezzar wants to understand the meaning of this tree. It terrifies him. He calls Daniel. And Daniel, the spirit of Nathan, says, King Nebuchadnezzar, this tree, you are the tree. Daniel 4.25, because of your pride, you will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle, be drenched the dew of heaven. Seven years will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High, Yahweh, is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes. This is a prophecy about you, O King. Daniel 4.27, he's a good diplomat, Daniel. Therefore, O king, accept my advice. This is my counsel to you. Renounce your sins. Humble yourself and repent. Suffice to say, the king was unrepentant. Twelve months later, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your authority has been taken from you immediately. What had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. He went insane because of his pride. And God, as a sovereign ruler, removed this king's authority away from him and after seven years 434 at the end of that time I Nebuchadnezzar 
raised my eye toward heaven, the true king. And my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. All the kingdoms will fall. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And then, it is at this time, this pagan king says, All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand. No one can stop God. No one can say to Him, What have you done? After this, Nebuchadnezzar came out with a right view of God. God-centered king. Right? right understanding of God's sovereignty. This is the great urgent need of our lives. This is what gives us confidence, gives us hope. This is the foundation of our faith. This is what gives us strength to endure. Knowledge of God's sovereignty. Romans 8.28, the extent of God's sovereignty is such that He works all things together for the good, for those who are called according to His purpose. That's the extent of God's sovereignty. He works everything, especially um, the difficult things, the painful things, even the most wicked and depraved sins in our hearts and in this world for the good. What is the good for us to be like Christ? To conform to the image of God. Nothing can stop God. Even sin can't stop God. Even evil, the worst depravity in the world cannot stop God. He will make us holy. He will make us like Christ. And He will achieve it on the day of His return. He will do all things for this purpose. Um, I'm finished the book a while back, Polishing God's Monuments by Jim Andrews. He has a real good illustration about um, God's sovereignty and how He uses all things, especially the bad things for the good. As we encounter difficult things in life, He explains to us how God, what God is doing, how ultimately be for good. I, I tasted this this week. I went to, um, many of you have been praying for Ethan's court case Got delayed again, the termination of parental rights, uh, 2 6 hearing, here we go, and, you know, November 15th, and then we send the judge, and some papers weren't filed, so it delayed two more weeks. Well, you go to this family court in uh, Monterey Park in California, and it's like the most depressing place because you have all these kids running around, and they look happy, they sound happy, the pet adults, like lawyers and court appointed, like, you know, uh, helpers, they all act nicely to kids. They, they hand out teddy bears and candy and, and crayons. and it's like, It looks like Disneyland, but adults, we know what's going on. These are kids who are neglected, abused, who are foster care, who are, have custody battles and all sorts of dramas going on. Difficult place to be. Difficult things to, we hear. People in our church have experienced this. Our family's experienced this. Recently, you go to a doctor and you hear difficult news. You hear news about yourself or your children, that's difficult. How are you, how are you to understand um, God's sovereign in the midst of these difficult things? Well, polishing God's monuments is an illustration about uh, making a meal and how God is using 
the recipes of this world to make a great meal that will come in the end. We taste each ingredient separately, but in the end, the final product will be sweet, will be delicious, will be satisfying. Thought about this, and um, you know, as a Korean person, I guess, there are things that we eat that I'm very proud of that I want to share with people. You know, if you've never had Korean barbecue, my heart goes out to you, brother. Right. You haven't really lived until you had Korean barbecue. And there are meals in the Korean, you know, culture that I'm kind of embarrassed about. One of them is oxtail soup. Right? Delicious, but it's embarrassing. That our ancestors would look at an ox. You know, that tail, I bet you it'll be really good. We cut it up, boil it for a few hours, add some ingredients, man, it's going to be delicious. Now, who is this Korean guy or lady that thought this up? But it's very delicious. It is. Trust me. So imagine like you're having this oxtail soup, but you eat it differently. You eat it one ingredient at a time. So you just, without boiling the tail, you just eat the tail. And then you eat salt. And then you eat MSG. <laughs> Gary and I were having lunch this week. Went to a restaurant, a Sundubu restaurant. And then we ordered our Sundubu. And the waiter's like, do you want with MSG or without MSG? What kind of question is that? Of course MSG. <laughs> no. Double MSG. No, I mean, of course no MSG. Right? And then you have sugar, and then you have the broth. It'd be a weird experience, but that's what we're experiencing day to day in our lives. Someday we're eating sugar. Someday it is bitter like salt. Someday we're eating meat that's raw, and it's, it hurts us. Right? But all these recipes are given to us, but at the end, God will bring it all together. He's not going to make oxtail soup, but... You understand? He's going to take all the bitter and sweet, all the things of our lives, and bring it together. And in His sovereignty, make a meal that is sweet to us. That's the extent of God's sovereignty. At the end, at the day of Christ, everything will make sense. We'll understand. We'll understand how God used joyful things in life and the painful things and the difficult things and the hard things. And sins of our, our loved ones, even our own sins. How he used all of that in his sovereignty together for the good. And at the end, we'll dine with Christ and rejoice because we would say this meal is perfect. I'm glad I had this salt. I'm glad I had this bitterness in my life because that bitterness made this meal perfect. Right. Isaiah saw God's sovereignty, how God's in control. Second, he saw God's holiness. Verse 2. Above him were seraphs, angels, fiery ones, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. Here they were, these, these glorious creatures, surrounding God's throne to serve and worship Him. With two they flew. With two they covered their feet, signifying humility, but with two, they covered their faces. Now, why did they do that? 
Just to summarize for you, Exodus 33, a Moses, the most ser- humble servant of God, the most humble prophet of God, faithful to God's word, asked for one thing. He never asked for anything. He just wanted one thing. Let me see your face. I want to see your glory. And God said, you can't see my face. Because no man, because of their sins, no man can see God and live. What I will do, though, is I will put you on a cleft of a rock, and I will pass by. And as I pass by, I will cover your face. But after I pass by, I will remove my hand from your face, and you will see the diminishing, fading glory of my presence. And that will be enough for you. And Moses came down from the mountain. The Bible says his face was radiating. His face was glowing with just a passing glimpse of God's glory. How much more? His full radiance shining from his face. Even these glorious fiery angels who are without sin could not expose themselves to God's glory. They could not look at God's face. They could not look directly at God's holiness. They had to cover their faces and they were declaring why they had to cover their faces. Verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's a cry. It's a declaration. It's an anthem that Yahweh is a thrice holy God. They repeat this for the sake, purpose of emphasis. Placing great emphasis that God above all is a holy God. That He is morally perfect, supremely beautiful, unequaled in righteousness, and lives in unapproachable light. That there is no sin, blemish, or defect in God. This is the only attitude of God so emphasized in the Bible. Repeated three times here in Isaiah 6, Revelation 4. God has never spoken of as being love, 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 or kind, 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 or nice, nice, nice. But twice, God is holy, holy, holy. Therefore, everything that God does, everything that emanates from God is holy. That's why His Spirit is holy. That's why the Bible is a holy Bible. His words are holy. That's why His presence is holy. That's why His justice is holy. His love is holy. This is the core essential attribute of God. He is separate from all creation. There is none like Him. 1 Samuel 2.2 There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside thee. We're experiencing a completely foreign entity in God. We can't compare Him to anything in this world because of His thrice holy character nature. For Isaiah 40.25 To whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him? He is incomparable. His holiness is utterly unique divine essence. It determines all that He does and is and is determined by no one. Call it His majesty, divinity, greatness, value. In the end, language runs out to describe, explicate the holiness of God. In the word holy, someone has said, we have sailed to the world's end in the utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. He alone is God. He alone is holy. Nothing can be compared to Him. He is perfect. He's 
perfect. He is pure light. He is supremely beautiful. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. There was an earthquake. This huge temple made with marble stone was being moved, and it was being filled with smoke. And Isaiah is an Old Testament student, so not the Old Testament, he's a prophet, Old Testament prophet. He understood what smoke meant in the Old Testament. Smoke often accompanied God in the Old Testament. Exodus 19:18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. Second Samuel 22:8. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Isaiah understood that the earth shaking and the temple being filled with smoke was a sign of God's wrath. A sign of God being provoked to anger. Second Samuel 22 verse 9 Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it because he was angry. Smoke was indicative of God coming into contact with sin. Reflected his wrath, anger, and judgment as a sign of the impending judgment of God. And then Isaiah understood who God was angry at. God was coming into contact with sin, and he understood the source of this sin. Verse 5 Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. He saw the temple, the throne, the glory, the train filling the temple. He saw the angels, holy, holy, holy. He experienced the earth shake, the temple filled with smoke. He understood God was angry, and he understood God was angry at him. And he said, woe is me, I am ruined. Woe is a word of cursing and doom, a pronouncement of judgment. If you read the first five chapters of Isaiah, you see this word repeated again and again. In the first five chapters of Isaiah, he denounced the people of his nation and pronounced judgment upon them by saying, Woe, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Isaiah said, Woe to you because you parade your sin like Sodom. You do not hide your sins. You're not ashamed of your sins. Woe to you. God condemns you. God curses you. God is angry at you. Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. Woe to you who are greedy, who add house to house. Woe to you who rise up early to drink, to get drunk. And stay up late to get drunk. Woe to you those who draw sin along with cords of deceit, wickedness as with cart ropes. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, champions at mixing drinks. He understands this term of condemnation. And after seeing the holiness of God, he cried out, Woe is me. I am cursed. I am damned. I am ruined. Literally undone. I am coming apart. I can't exist after this. I am done. I am destroyed. 
because as a sinner, I stand before a thrice holy God and he's angry at me and I can't exist after this. And then he names the sin. He specifies, you understand his confession, he specifies what his sin is. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh Almighty. Now he's saying I have a dirty mouth. But biblically, we understand, Matthew 12, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So tongue is just a muscle. It has no mind. It has no control. It has no wisdom. A tongue is just a byproduct of the heart. So if your tongue is full of complaining, that means there's complaint in your heart. If your tongue is spewing hatred, that means there's hatred in your heart. The tongue has no mind of its own. The tongue is just a fruit of the heart. If you say good things, good things are in your heart. My lips are unclean. My tongue is unclean. I have a dirty heart. He goes to the core of who he is. I'm a sinner to the core. My heart is filthy, full of sin. At the core of my being, I'm a sinner and I have seen the holy God. Therefore, I am judged. I am condemned. I am destroyed. We see an important truth here in the account of Isaiah on the depravity of man. That even the prophet Isaiah, who was called of God, knew himself, knew that he was a sinner. And on his own account, he deserved only one thing. He deserved hell because of his sins. Pastor Joseph Aline said this, I use it all the time in my evangelism. There is nothing in man that turns God's heart, but there's enough in man that turns God's stomach. So when God sees us, when He doesn't see us like we see our children, all so beautiful, so cute, so precious, our hearts are warmed. And when God sees us, there's nothing in us that turns His heart, warms His heart, but there's enough in us, it turns His stomach. He wants to vomit when he sees our sins. He sees what we don't see in each other. He sees us as we are and he wants to vomit. Sproul has said, this is the first time Isaiah really understood who God was. And the first time Isaiah understood who he was. Right. So I, like You guys are, woe to you, woe to you. He's so selfish, so greedy, so lustful for sin. God judges you. God is angry at you. God condemns you. And then he sees God, his holiness, and then he says, Woe is me. I am judged. I am cursed because I am a sinner. So when we compare ourselves with others, we're, we're fine. When we see ourselves in light of God's holiness, then we see how sinful we are. People say this again and again, you know, at our church. You know, they come to our church and they ask me, why are you trying to hurt me? Why are you trying to break me down? Right? No, I'm not trying to break anyone down. That's what the Bible says. What about my self-esteem? Yeah, it's right. You have too much self-esteem. Right? That's exactly it. I completely reject this notion of self-esteem before God. What did Paul say? I'm the worst of all sinners. 
We have Christ to esteem. We have nothing to esteem in in of ourselves. People say all the time, James, I never knew how great a sinner I was until I came to Cornerstone. Great. And you know what? It gets worse. Right? Hopefully, your understanding of your sinfulness is growing over the years. If it's diminishing, then we're not doing our work and something's wrong with your heart. Right? If you're mourning over sin, you're grieving and sorrow over sin is not growing, if your sensitivity to sin is not growing, something is wrong with your heart and wrong with our preaching, wrong with our ministry. Isaiah understood this. But Isaiah continued on. He saw God's sovereignty and holiness, but he also saw God's grace. Though we find that we are far more sinful than we ever imagined, we find that the Bible says that God's grace is far greater than we can imagine. Verse 6, One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar, with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Sin is covered over. This is a visual picture of the atonement, forgiveness of Isaiah's sins. It's a picture of a contrite, humble, broken soul, crying out to God to be saved, and the picture of God in His holiness and mercy, purging this man of many sins. There are many different ideas of what this burning coal and altar signify. But suffice to say, in not of the New Testament, it ultimately points to the cross of Christ. Points to the cross of Christ. How Christ, what He experienced on the cross, this burning agony, is what atoned for Isaiah's sins and atoned Tones for our sins. And here Isaiah experienced God's grace. God's infinite mercy. God's infinite love. Should I use the handheld mic? I'm going to go on this eight-step program to uh, work on my speech, work on my uh, practice, my habits, and be a, a better person. He does nothing of that sort. All he has done is recognize, acknowledge God's sovereignty, God's holiness, and confess his sin. The core sin confesses it to God. And God initiates salvation. God hears his humble soul cry out to God, and he gives mercy and grace to those who are proud Those who are arrogant, they want to stand on their own righteousness. And they want to work for salvation. They discount God's grace and mercy. They want to merit God's favor. God has only one response. It's anger, wrath, and judgment. But to a contrite and humble soul, God's response is one of infinite mercy. And then the Lord employs him. Verse 8. Heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? Whom shall I send? The hardest job in the world. What is the hardest job? To proclaim God's word to a people who think that they are righteous. 
to proclaim God's word to a people who think that they are pleasing God. People who think that they are God's people, that God loves them, God affirms them, God is on their side. That God is pleased by their religious rights. That look down on others and think that they are righteous and other, are, other people are evil. This is the most impossible job. Whom shall I send? After seeing God's glory, experiencing God's grace, Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. Serving you will be the greatest privilege of my life. Overflowing with praise and thanksgiving, he considers preaching God's word as his highest joy and reward. And he said, okay, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Go and tell them, you will hear my message, but you'll never understand. You will see, but you'll never perceive. In fact, more you preach the same heat that melts butter hardens clay, your message will harden people's hearts. Isaiah, tell them that they will never be saved. Tell them that God has judged them already. Tell them they will never repent. Because if they could see, they would be saved. They could hear, they will repent. If their hearts could understand, they would turn away from their sins, but they will not. In fact, your message will cause them to all the more rebel against God. So Isaiah's response is, how long do I do this for? Until the cities are destroyed. Unless God, using the instrument of these foreign nations, Babylon comes in and destroys the nation of Judah, your ministry will not be over. What a difficult assignment. And yet Isaiah was faithful. His vision of God sustained him to the end. According to Jewish tradition, Isaiah met his death by being sawn in half during the reign of the evil king Manasseh of Judah. Isaiah didn't quit, didn't waver. He was faithful to the end because his obedience was fueled by the knowledge of God's sovereignty, knowledge of God's holiness, and his personal experience of God's grace. Three closing thoughts. Are you uh, tasting the ingredients without tasting the final meal? Are you just living day, day to day and you're not in the Word? You don't, you're not tasting the final meal. That's why we love the Scriptures. Because as we taste the difficult parts of the recipe, through the Scriptures, we taste the final meal and we know our hope is at the end it will be perfect. When we come to church, we're reminded of that one great day and the banquet that we'll experience, and how sweet it'll all be after all the days have passed. But are you just tasting the ingredients, but because you're not in the Word, you're not in the Scriptures, you're not hoping for the future, you're not longing for the future, your life is filled with bitterness, your life is without meaning, you have no wisdom, you have no understanding because your life is all about what you experience today or experiencing now instead of what is to come in light of God's sovereignty. Secondly, 
Are you majoring on the minors? Are you in the thick of thin things? Or do you know why you were created? Do you know why God saved you? It's to be a worshiper of God, to delight in God, to cherish God, to know God. Do you understand that your greatest boast in life ought to be that you know God? And it's not just head knowledge. It's but by your life, it is clear you know God's sovereignty. How you, how you respond to the trials of life, the disappointments and pains of life, it is evident you know God's sovereignty. How you live your life, the decisions you make, what has gripped your heart, you understand God's holiness. Are you swimming in God's grace, the infinite mercy of God, the love of God? Do you understand these core truths of Scripture? Are you gripped by them? Or are you an intellectual snob? Are you just... Are you living in the past? Are you name-dropping? Like what seminars you've gone to or retreats or what churches you've gone to or what books you've read or are you just looking always for the new instruction new insight new teaching your heart is restless not content with these glorious truths of the Bible about God about himself this is what Christ revealed to us a true knowledge of the Father and finally, in your ministry, in your life, are you motivated, motivated by grace? Are you responding to God's work of sovereign grace in your life? Or is it legalism? Is it works? Is it, are you running on fumes? Or are you running on God's grace? If you're responding by works, then you have a short and shallow Christian life ahead of you. Uh, you have no... You're... you're, you're the power to sustain godliness extends maybe to Sunday afternoons. Or you quit Monday afternoon. Or Wednesday, by Wednesday you're living in sin. But if you're fueled by what God has done. The songs you sing is not about what you're going to do for God. The songs you sing is about what God has done for you. The prayers you pray are about what God has done for you. The sermon that you preach to yourself is not just do it. Work harder. Right? Do this or do that. So as you preach to yourself is what God has done. It's the gospel of Christ. And, and God's grace will sustain your faith. Grant you a spirit of joy, uh, contentment, peace that path this understanding, and a spirit of endurance. You know how to uh, persevere because your Christian life, my Christian life is not our work, but it's God's work. What he, what he started, He will finish. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Isaiah 6. We thank you that you don't treat us as slaves, you don't treat us as strangers, but you've treated us as your children, sons and daughters. For you revealed to us what is most precious, precious to you, knowledge of yourself. You have given to us what is most valuable, what is most important, knowledge of who you are. 
you have kept it. The inner Trinitarian Council for years, for ages. But now you have revealed it to your people. So Lord, may the knowledge of you be our treasure. Be our most valuable things in, our, in this world. Be what we long for. And be our heart's cry. May these things be the core values that we pursue after all our days. God, we humbly pray that the roots of the gospel will dig deep into our hearts and will bear fruit in every area of life, all to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.